Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Um, glad you're here tonight. Sounds like um, little Jer's not feeling well, and so Monalyn and Jeremy are watching online tonight. I thought we'd talk a little bit about um, word studies here. And, uh, you know, God's the master communicator, isn't he? He knows how to speak our language. He, he can uh, hear prayers from people who speak every form of language, and he knows how to speak and even to bypass words and get to the heart. But uh, he does communicate words. And I wanted to mention as we get into this that no two languages are exactly the same. As we come to the Bible, uh, we should understand that um, it's been put in our language, but no two languages are exactly the same. Words words sound different. That's probably the most obvious thing to us is that one word in one language sounds different from one word in another language. Um, but not only is that the case, but they're structured differently. I'm finding that out a little bit. Um, in Greek, they have the way they structure their sentences is they start with the verb, and then you have the subject, and then you have the uh, the object. And so it's always the verb is first, or usually the verb's first, unless there's some other reason to put it, uh, something else before that. But we don't do that. We have a pretty standard structure, don't we? Like um, Jack and Jill went up the hill. We have... Of subject, verb, object, okay? Does that make sense? Even if that's a little bit nerdy for a, a church service, I think it's important to understand that languages, they don't communicate exactly the same way. And I saw this again in Peru when I was speaking in one of the, the Shawi villages. Uh, I noticed that I, when I would say a certain thing, it took a certain amount of time. And then uh, it was translated into Spanish, attempted to be translated. I don't know exactly how how uh, thorough that was, but we had it translated in Spanish. And you'll notice that a lot of times the Spanish takes roughly the same amount of time as the English because those are both European languages, uh, Spanish and English, right? But then um, even the inflection of the Spanish translator would, would try to match or mimic whatever inflection we had as we communicated. But um, then... The next thing that would happen is um, the Shawi pastor would say it. And so the Shawi pastor said it, and it was much, much shorter. You guys who are there, true? Like much shorter, no inflection at all in the voice. It was very straightforward in his communication. Matter-of-factly said, I think there was some a blaze in his eyes, and so the intensity was communicated uh, through his looks, and there were uh, hand gestures that were a little bit different from our hand gestures, but I'm trusting that the same thing was being communicated. You, you never know because we'll only know in eternity. But the thing that really stood out is that no two languages are alike. So we're dealing with that. The Bible was written in three languages. What are they, if you know them? Go ahead and say them out loud. Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Okay, Hebrew because that's the language spoken by the ancient Israelites, right? And then they went into captivity to Babylon, and when they came back from captivity, they came back, most of them speaking Aramaic. And so when Ezra was reading the law in 
uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, it tells about Nehemiah, I think, chapter 8 or 9. It talks about how he stood on this high podium. He's similar to a pulpit. And he would proclaim the Word of God. He'd read the Word of God. And then there would be translators who would translate and give the sense of what's said in Aramaic. And so uh, there's a few of our books of the Bible and portions that are written in Aramaic, not a large portion, just a little bit. And then, of course, by the time that um, the New Testament was written, the, the language of the world, because of Alexander the Great, had become Greek. And so they, they wrote in Greek, perhaps Matthew was written in Aramaic or maybe even Hebrew, but the oldest manuscripts that we have are in Greek. And so we have these three languages. Um, and they're different. Aramaic, uh, Hebrew is different from Aramaic. Aramaic is different from Greek. And all three of them are different from English. And so uh, we have to keep that in mind when we, we read the Bible is that the Bible we're reading is not the Bible as it originally was. Okay, uh, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we can't have an accurate uh, understanding of what the Bible said. I'm saying that when it was originally written, it wasn't written in English. And so what we have is we have texts that stand behind our English translations, and the best that we have uh, in terms of English, whether it's the KJV or the ESV or the NIV or NLT or something else, they're translations, they're versions of the originals. And so we have to deal with that because English is the language we know. Uh, but words are important. And I was going to do this, and I rushed out of the house, but I was going to bring some Tupperware because I don't know how about your house, but our house is flooded with Tupperware. I'm ready to throw it out. Anybody need Tupperware? I'm going to get in trouble if I give our Tupperware away. You can have too much Tupperware if you can't get it in the cabinets. And that's where we're at. Joe and, oh, Janie's looking in. <laughs> Joe and I find ways just to get the doors closed. <laughs> anyway, here's where I was going with all that is that, you know, we've got all different sizes of Tupperware. And languages or words, I should say, uh, are like containers. They, they contain a certain amount. And we have this Tupperware that sections off different portions. Anybody else have that? That inside the Tupperware, there's actually little sections where you can put your little carrots and your peas if you wanted to, and then a piece of salmon or whatever it may be that goes on the other side. And you can portion that out. But it's all in one container. And I think of words as containers. And no words exactly match from language to language. And so this is part of the difficulty we're dealing with. Uh, Eugene Nida was a lifelong missionary and a linguist, and so he um, understood several languages, and he helped translate the Bible into many languages. And he says this, that no two languages, excuse me, no two words in any two languages are exactly the same. So uh, the problem isn't that we can't communicate the same concepts. We can, we can say the same kinds of things, but it's not exactly because every word matches. So when we say, I want a word-for-word -word translation, one of the things we need to understand is that not always is there an exact equivalent English word. And that's one of the reasons why in our English translations, if you look at different translations, sometimes they'll translate those words differently. And so they're capturing a concept that we can't exactly grasp. Where Our target is to try to get it as accurately as we can the meaning of the original text into our English language. Okay, so that's the goal of all of that. And uh, there's no two words that are exactly alike. Um, and you know that because um, the word love is an example of that. 
But words can also have more than one meaning, can't they? I'll talk about that in just a second. Some, some of you know this better than others because you're, you're bilingual. Um, if we want to know somebody's name in English, what do we say? What is, what's your name? Okay, that's the easy one. The next one is, in Spanish, what do you say? Okay, como te llamas, right? What's your names? And uh, that actually doesn't mean exactly what's your name, does it? It means how are you called? How are you called? So we don't, we're not exactly, we're communicating the same thing, but the words are a little bit different. In fact, uh, not only that, but the word uh, yamas is also the word of an Andean uh, pack animal. They call it uh, camelid. Did you know that? I didn't realize this, but apparently um, llamas are in the same family as camels. Huh? I don't know. I don't know. But they're called a camelid. That's the scientific name for them. And so um, the word for what are you called, called, is the same word as llamas, plural. So you, you can already see that there's a little bit of trouble. And we, we all interpret words. When we, we talk about doing word studies here tonight, we're already doing this. When we hear a word, we're already in the work of processing what does that mean. And sometimes we come to misunderstandings, don't we? It's part of being human is that we, we don't know because we have limited knowledge what other people exactly mean. We have to interpret are you, are you with me on that? Do you agree with that? That we, we have to do some interpretation. As somebody is sending out their words, we've got to take them in and translate them. It's, a, it's magnificent. I just marvel at this, that, that we make certain intonations, vibrations through the airwaves, and somebody else receives those. And they're all symbols that carry a certain amount of meaning. And it can be, it can be visual, too, where we look at words on a page where something like this happens. And it's encoded, and we have to decode it. And that sounds really complex, but we can really do this well already. We understand and interpret this, but sometimes this gets distorted, sometimes intentionally by sin. Like, you know, uh, we have those people on, on the news that are called spin doctors, that they take something, some sound bite, and they spin it to mean whatever they want it to mean. Not what's said, but what we want it. And, you know, sometimes we do that too. We take what people say and we interpret our own way for our own purposes. And so the real goal of communication is the speaker needs to try to say it in a way that the hearer will understand. And the hearer at the same time has to do their job and try to understand what the speaker means. And when that happens, as it should, then real communication can happen on a deep level. You know, and there's also all kinds of games we play with one another where we don't say what we really mean and, and things like that. And I just I want to start with this premise is the Bible is trying to be understood. It's not trying to hide. No, um, you could make a case that there are some things that are hidden from those that are, are wise and proud. But I think what God is ultimately trying to do in the Bible is disclose himself. He's trying to show who he is, reveal who he is. And the way that he's chosen to do that in a fixed way so that every culture can receive it and understand who he is, is through words. The, the gospel is communicated through words. Some, some people have made the argument that a picture is worth a thousand words. Okay, and I thought about this, thought, how could that be true? Why would God choose not the visual so much as the auditory or the verbal? 
And it occurs to me that a picture of somebody on the cross is not the same thing as Paul's brief statement, Christ died for our sins. That carries so much. It tells us what happened. It tells us why it happened. There's so much in that. If you didn't know the context of Christianity and you saw a picture of a person on the cross, you would see somebody cruelly dying. Maybe you'd think it's even a scarecrow. But if you know the message that's communicated in words, it's got to be communicated in words, then you can understand what that picture is all about. And so I'm going to, I would argue with you that, yes, pictures may say a thousand words, but which words? And words, to me, are more articulate and more accurate. And so it's important that we understand that. Sorry if we're getting a little nerdy and if this isn't interesting, but I, I want us to understand the importance of this as we read our Bible. We're doing this already, the interpreting of words, but do we do it well? And, and how far are we going with all of this? So words, I want to talk about a right approach to doing word studies, and then I'll, I'll talk about some cautions that we have related to this, and then we'll do a minor word study tonight before we go if we have time. First thing um, that we need to point out is that words have to be understood in a context, okay? You can't take the word out and just uh, assume that it means everything that, uh, that a dictionary says about it. A word has a meaning within context, and linguists have, have started to really acknowledge this and emphasize this, that if you're going to understand what a word means, you have to understand it in the context, and so let me give you some examples uh, of that. What does the word hand mean? Hand, what does it mean? Okay, yeah, yeah. We got these little digits. Are these the phalanges, Daryl? Phalanges, and I don't know what all these bones are called, but covered by muscle and skin, and pretty marvelous what we can do with that. But what else does hand mean? What's that? To hand somebody, to give, okay, to give. To help, lend me a hand. Okay, what else? Folks, let's give them a hand. Applaud, right? I mean, that seems like a really simple word, but there's a lot of meanings to it. How about run? Have you thought about run? What what does run mean? (laughs) Okay, Dean went right for the jugular with that one. (laughs) Execute. I don't even think that's on my list of examples here. Good job, Dean. I d- that's right. I got outmaneuvered from the back row. My goodness. All right, but the obvious one is I ran two miles today. That's that's not obvious from looking at me, but it's obvious that that would be the first definition. Um, she ran, she had a run in her nylons. What's that mean? <laughs> Don't, nobody wears nylons anymore as far as I know. Um, that grapevine uh, runs through the fence. Okay, so it's found its way through the fence. It's articulated. Uh, my nose runs when I have a cold. I need to run to the store. Uh, by the way, if you're in Louisiana, did you know that when they go shopping, they say, I need to go make groceries? Anyway, that's a bonus. I need to run to the store. Oh, hey, my new computer runs faster than the previous one. That's kind of in the same uh, category, isn't it? I try not to let the water run. When I'm not using it, because that runs up the water bill. There's a couple in that one. And then I ran out of gas today, and someday I'll run for president. 
See, you can use that in a lot of different ways. And the only way we know the meaning of the word run there is by looking at the words around it. Otherwise, what does it mean? It probably, we probably have some generic definition. And a generic definition is often called a gloss. That's just like a one-word equivalent as best that can be done. Sometimes you can't just use one word. But there are biblical examples of this too. The word law. When we come across the word law, it doesn't always mean the same thing in the Bible. Okay, so when we talk about the word law, we could be talking about like the natural law, a, a particular law that God set in place, like a law of sowing and reaping. It could be referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. Sometimes it's used of the whole Old Testament. Sometimes it's referring to the laws of Moses, right? And so there's a lot of different understandings of what law is. And, and that one, when we're, we're dealing with, especially the epistles of Paul, like Galatians and Romans, We've got to read those, read that in context and figure out what it means. Um, grace is another one. Grace doesn't always mean unmerited favor. Sometimes it means help, God's help in a particular situation or his, his gift in a particular way. What about world? How can John say, God so loved the world, and in his epistles say, love not the world or the things that are in the world? How can he say that? Well, it's because there's at least three meanings for the word world. One is uh, the world is the, the cosmos, what we live in, right? This tangible, um, you know, rock that's moving through space here and even the universe. Another understanding of world is that it refers to the people in the world, the, the fallen and the redeemed. So God loves the world. But then another way of looking at the world is it's the uh, rebellious community that's risen up against God, okay? So there's a, a spirit of the world, like the spirit of Babylon, that is uh, running contrary to God. And so we need to understand within the context, what, is, what does John mean when he says God so loved the world? Well, he loves people. It's not, he's not talking about the, the globe so much. He's talking about the people that are, that are in the world, Okay. And then sometimes when he, when he says, love not the world, he's talking about loving, not loving the systems that have risen in rebellion against God. Okay. So words mean things in context. The second thing that I, I want to point out here is, is that words mean one thing in a context unless the context clues us to a double meaning. So there are tricky cases, and there's not very many of them, where there's a double intention that's meant. Okay. But what I wouldn't want to encourage is for us to read all of Scripture as if it means two or three or four things. There was a approach back in the uh, Middle Ages uh, called Quadriga, where they interpreted everything at four different levels. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm saying that the Scripture writer intentionally meant something as a double meaning. And sometimes that's the case. We just need to be aware that that's there. Probably you won't come across it very often. Okay. And then here's um, the next thing is that words are best understood in their immediate context and then working outward. So if uh, you're reading Romans, okay, chapter 8, for example, and we come across a word that we need to define, okay, the first thing you want to do is you want to look in that paragraph and see what does the paragraph say. That's going to help you understand what the word means, okay? Are we all Bible readers tonight? If you're not a Bible reader, let's be Bible readers and then... Um, this is a way to really enrich in, uh, is, that, is that the right word? 
your Bible reading, enrich your Bible reading, okay? So first thing we want to do is we look at the immediate context, which is the paragraph that it's in, not just the sentence, but look at the whole paragraph. And remember last time I said that if you want to find the paragraph and uh, you don't have a paragraph Bible, one of the ways to do that is look for the bold numbers. The bold numbers will help you see that. Second uh, area where you will look, if you want to find the meaning of a word, is you want to look in the same book if you're looking at context. What is... What does this author say in the rest of the book about this? If you're talking about law in Galatians, look through the whole book and see how Paul's using law. He may be using in a consistent way through the whole book. Sometimes there's switch, but at least you'll have an idea. And then look at all the uses. The third uh, category here is look at all the uses by the same author. So you don't want to take um, John's understanding of a certain concept and try to force that into Paul's mind. He may mean something slightly different. Okay, So just, just keep that in mind as you do word studies. And then you want to look at all the uses in the same time period, which means like if you're studying um, what the Bible says about love, start and you're, you're reading in John, you want to look first at what it says throughout the whole New Testament. After you've looked at John, uh, all of his writings, um, throughout the book of John, all of his writings, then look through the whole New Testament, see how they see the concept of love, and then through all of the Bible. And then you can go even beyond that because we have extra biblical sources we can look at how they use the, the term in that day. All right? So that's some right approaches. Always take a word in context. If you want just the gist of everything that's said there, uh, don't make a word mean what we think it means. Um, and I'll give you some examples of that in just a moment because there are wrong approaches to doing this. Okay? There's, there's four of them that I want to mention. First of all is... Uh, one thing we don't want to do when we come to a biblical word is try to determine the meaning solely on the word's origin. Okay, I'll give you an example of this uh, from our language and then from Scripture. Okay, So if you want to know what a butterfly is, you don't try to determine how do butters and flies go together. Okay, That's not going to give you any understanding of a butterfly. Butter and flies is, is just a a word that's mashed up, you can't get to its understanding by looking at the etymology of butter and fly. Does that make sense? So we can't get there by doing that. What about a hot dog? You can't, you can't figure out what the word means by looking at hot, the concept of hot and dog, and going, oh, I see. I see now. Although, well, for another time. Okay, hot dog's another one. Here's Here's one that uh, from the Greek New Testament is the word that we have for repentance. Repentance, the Greek word is metanoia, okay, metanoia. And it, mean, it means literally uh, to think after, okay. So after is meta, and then noia is to think, it means to think after. If you take that understanding of it and push it through every place you find repentance in the New Testament, it's going to be real confusing, what we need to understand is what did, what did it mean in Paul's day? That's the original, like classical Greek definition. But language has changed through time, and so we find that it came to mean a change of mind. But not only a change of mind, but the concept was related to a Hebrew concept. I believe it's shub, which means to turn. Okay, and so the the idea is that it's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. 
Okay? It's not just a change of mind. It's a change of mind that's connected to a change of life. That true repentance isn't just saying you're sorry. True repentance is being willing to change. You with me? Whether we are or not, I'm moving on, all right? Okay. The second uh, thing that we could do with word studies that's a little bit dangerous, it's kind of a wrong approach, is to read back into a word a later meaning. And there's a couple of these that are prevalent through the church. Uh, one of them is dunamis. Romans 6, uh, 116 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, first the Jew and also the Greek, right? And the word for power there is the Greek word dunamis. And so you'll hear people say, um, it's the dynamite of God. Well, it's not the dynamite of God because Paul, when he wrote that, never had dynamite in his conception. He never thought about that. That wasn't invented until, I think, 1845, dynamite. By anybody know the inventor of dynamite? Nobel, the guy that the Nobel Prize is named after. Was he the first winner of the Nobel Prize, Dean? He started, okay. I don't know if he gave himself the first. I invented dynamite. I'm getting the first one. (laughs) He had a guilty conscience, so he needed to give money away. Gotcha. I think I knew that. So anyway, we can't read back into that dynamite. For one thing, dynamite's destructive, okay? And so to read back in, it's the dynamite. The gospel is the dynamite of God. No, it's the power of God. To say it the other way is almost like, you know, if you watch Ben-Hur and you see the guy with a wrist, wristwatch on, you're like, hmm, that doesn't fit the timing, does it? Like, nobody was wearing wristwatches like that in that day. And nobody was thinking about dynamite in Paul's day. And so that's reading it back in. Another one is the word martyr, okay? Mart- marturos, I think, is the, the Greek word. And if you read it in um, the book of Acts when it says, you'll be my witnesses, at that point, the word meant witness, it didn't mean somebody who died for their faith. Not yet. In fact, maybe there's one instance in the Bible where it starts to mean that, and I think the connection is there in the book of Revelation, that these are his faithful witnesses who were, who were Antipas, I think, the faithful witness who was martyred before the altar, um, was killed before the altar. That may be the transition point, but martyr, as a Greek word, didn't mean somebody who died for their faith. It later came to mean that after the New Testament was written. So we get in danger when we read new understandings back in. We have to take out. What we're doing is we're trying to take out of Scripture what's there, not put in Scripture things that were never intended to be. Okay? So that's another danger. A third one is a false, what's called a false uh, uh, distinction or disjunction. It's when you make a distinction when there isn't intended to be one. And here's one that is often... Um, communicated is when Jesus talks to Peter on the side of the Sea of Galilee, and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And we translate it in our English, love, love, love. And we see that in the Greek, it's um, agape, agape, phileo, I believe, is the order. And sometimes we want to take that and we want to say, well, here's the difference between those words. Well, they're synonyms largely in John. John doesn't treat them as distinctives. He treats them synonymously. And so, uh, there are other writers that may do it more distinctively, but John is known for this because not only that, he says sheep, sheep, lambs, okay? So he's using different words to communicate the same concept, and a lot of times people do that stylistically, okay? They're not doing it in order to communicate a massive nuance. They're doing it 
um, in order to show some particular style. Um, and so to see phileo, which is a lot of people consider a friend kind of love and agape, considered the God kind of love, um, agape doesn't always mean the God kind of love in the New Testament. In fact, when it says Demas departed because he loved this present world, it says he agaped this present world. So it's not always exactly the God kind of love. God's kind of love is God's kind of love, but we don't connect the concept exactly with a word here. So that's one thing I would encourage us to be careful of is over-distinctifying words when they're not intended to be that specific. Okay, That may be getting a little deeper than we need to, but I wanted to mention that. And then another uh, is reading the whole meaning of a word into every context. Anybody heard of the Amplified Bible? Okay, Amplified Bible does this. It gives all the textual options right within the text. So you'll have you'll be reading along, and then you'll you'll come across. And I'm sorry, I didn't prepare an example, but you'll be reading across this passage, and then it'll come to a word that could be translated three different ways, and it'll give you all three. And one of the things that people often do is they they read in all three of those examples, and that's not the way that that's intended to be read. You're supposed to pick the best one and apply it and not use every one because it doesn't mean all of those. It means one of those. Um, so we can do that. Uh, an example of that is the word rhema. Uh, you probably heard the word rhema before. In the New Testament, there's a couple different words for word, and one of them is logos. Okay, and Another one is rhema, R-H-E-M-A is the way we would spell it if we transliterate it. And this this word um, can mean the spoken word. It can mean the word. It can mean the gospel. And not only that, it can mean uh, events and matters, like things that happen, just things that happen. So when Jesus was born, the I think it was the shepherds, it says, they went about telling uh, everyone about all of these things, ramas. So it's not exactly... You can't read back into every place where that is spoken word or you get into trouble with translation. It doesn't make sense. So be careful about reading back in uh, the whole meaning. So if you do a word study and you find out law means the books of Moses, it means the moral law, it means the whole testament, you can't understand the passage if you read every meaning into that use of law. Make sense? Okay. Yes? No? Questions? Okay. All right. So let's talk about a working approach. All right. Um, first, we need to decide on a word to study. Like, you're going to study the word the, you're going to be there forever, and it's not going to be very fruitful, and you're probably going to give up on your faith if you start <laughs> studying the word the. Like, how, you know how many, I even looked it up. We could look it up right now. I'm not going to, but uh, the word the in the Bible Oh, my goodness. It's so many times, right? So you need to find out um, some kind of word that's worth studying. There's a lot of words that you don't need to exactly know the uh, exact connotation of it because it fits within the context. And there are other words that are puzzling a little bit. So those are the ones to start with. I would would suggest three categories of words that may uh, be prime for us to study. We are studying the Bible, and I'm assuming you're a Wednesday night attender. You're, you're probably a student of the Bible, I, I hope, and I hope you'll take some of this and apply it. But a good way to decide about what words to do a word study on is, first of all, any word that's puzzling. You're like, 
I don't know what that means. That's a obvious. That Maybe that's a good one to study. If you don't know what it means, and you're like, what does justification mean here? Propitiation. What, what does propitiation mean? I don't have any idea what that means. And so you can begin to search that out, and it can be very fruitful if we follow the uh, right approach. Okay? So puzzling. A second way to, f- to figure this out is any word that appears to be significant to understanding the context. So it may not be puzzling. You might have a grasp a little bit on it, but you're like this, the whole of, the wor- of this verse rests upon this word. What does it mean? What does it mean in this context? And so you want to ask those questions. What does uh, it's the power of God mean when it says the gospel is the power of God in Romans 1.16? What, is, what does that mean? What does power mean in that context? What does Luke mean when he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? What, is, what does that mean? And so, it's the same word, by the way, dunamis, but there may be slightly different nuance between those two contexts. And context is king, not word. Context is king, okay? So, we want to figure out what the context is saying. And if there's a word that appears to be significant, like, I can't really get through this passage without understanding that, that's a great one to study. And then here's another clue. Okay, they didn't use exclamation points in the Bible. They didn't underline. They didn't use italics. They didn't have bold typeface. So the way that they emphasize words is through what? What is it? Same twice? Repetition. Okay, if you see a word repeated over and over again, it's probably a good idea other than the word the. Okay, so I want to make that caveat. You're... Um, that's called a definite article, and if there's an indefinite article, A or an, don't probably don't research those either. But if you see a word that's repeated a lot, that's a good one that you may want to study. So look into that, and you can do that. So the first thing you can do is you can um, you can look at the words around it in the immediate paragraph. Look at the words around it. And then you can start to use some tools and determine what the word means in its context. So here's the aim. And the aim is to find the range of meaning. So you've got your Tupperware container. It's got all of its compartments in it. This is your word. Okay. You want to figure out what's the whole range of meaning. What's, what's all in this container that I'm looking at here? Now, um, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage, which I'll talk about in just a moment. But um, the aim is to find the range of meaning. Okay, And then the goal at the end of it is to apply the right meaning to the context. Okay, So now you want to bring your word after you've studied it all. I'm going to talk about some details of studying it more in a moment. But you want to bring all that back into the context, um, your understanding of what word rightly fits there. And then you want to up- make application, which is a change of mind, change of action, change of life, whatever should follow as a result of that. Okay. Um, Tools. Let's talk about that for a second. This is one of the favorite things of mine to read is what kind of tools can we use to really get into the the Bible? And um, word studies can be beneficial in English. And so I don't want you to think that because we have a, we have a base of manuscripts that, that uh, precede our English translations that you can't get anywhere. You can. There's benefit to studying the English words that are in your Bible. Um, but we there is a much more accurate and rewarding uh, study that can be done in the original languages. And you can get there if you want to. There's some ways of doing that, but it requires some work. Uh, You could take several years of Greek and Hebrew 
and become proficient in the language, or you could rely upon authority. Do you know, all of our lives, we've been relying upon authorities for certain knowledge that we couldn't get on our own. Like the fact that we're rotating around the sun right now and not vice versa. We didn't see that. We're taking that on authority. For us, from our perspective, the sun rises every day, doesn't it? And sets every day. So how do we know that? Somebody showed us that this model makes more sense than the one we used to believe, right? So we took that upon authority because we probably haven't seen a lot of these things for ourselves. And a lot of things we learn, we've taken on authority. And so you can do that. You can get a lot further in life because other people who are sincere and have a right heart before God have done good work. Um, If you're nervous about that, let me uh, ease your mind about it. Nothing that you're going to learn in a word study, if it's done right, is going to overturn any doctrine of Scripture. Okay, so if you're doing a word study and you're relying upon somebody else's authority on it, nothing you'll learn in a word study is going to flip classical Christian doctrine on its head. Okay, so you can trust that you may get accurate or less accurate information but you're going to stay within the realm of orthodoxy. And I mean that in the sense of uh, true Christianity. Okay, so uh, these words have been poured over again and again for 2,000 years. And so you're probably not going to find anything new, but it might be new to you, and it might be revolutionary. So I want to encourage you in that. Uh, Remember that the Bible doesn't start with us. The ultimate definition is not what our dictionaries say the word means but what the word means in the Hebrew and the Greek in context, it was used. Um, for example, uh, our word word is not was not word, but it's logos, rhema, or whatever other example we have of that. So what are the tools? Let's get to that. First of all, good translations. If you want to do a good word study, if you want to read the Bible, if you want to understand the Bible in context, good translations. That's the place to start. Um, you can compare translations, and it's going to give you a good idea how words are translated in context. And if I, I were recommending any, I would start with the, um, the NAS, New American Standard Bible, the ESV, English Standard Version, the NET, which is the New English Translation. You can get that free online, not in a hard format, but you can see it online. The NLT, you could use that, New English or New Living Translation. Um, it's not really the best for word studies, but if you're comparing translations, throw that one in there. You might be surprised to find that sometimes that has a really good explanation of what a word means. I want to encourage you to be careful with King James Version for this reason, not because I'm anti-King James, I'm not, but some words meant something different before and than they do now. And so you have to be careful about that because it could be misleading. Prevent in First Thessalonians meant precede. Uh, conversation, Paul talks about conversation in Philippians and I think in um, Ephesians as well. And when he uses conversation there, he doesn't mean just the things we say. He means lifestyle, your whole life. The Greek word that stands behind it, peripateo, your walk. Okay, so be careful about that because if you read conversation there, you only get part of the picture. And in 1611, everybody would have understood that meant lifestyle. But over time, words change meaning. So be careful about that. If you use the KJV as comparison, that's that's great. But use some other translations as well, and it will help. And if for nothing else, this, 
is that if you want to stay fresh in your faith, sometimes a new translation will break through the crust. It'll force you to not read the words that you expect, and you'll see the words that are translated from the same texts. You'll see it in the language that you may not anticipate, and it might rock your world in a good way. Okay. Um, the second one is a concordance. Anybody know what, what's a concordance? Anybody want to? You have one on your phone? Yes, there is. You might have to mention what that is in just a moment. Okay, well, what is a concordance? Yeah. Right, and that's that's a good understanding. In fact, uh, probably some of you in the back of your Bible have a, a have an abridged concordance. Abridged means that it's not all the examples of the word, but it's probably the most significant ones. And so you could look at the back of your Bible, and you might have one back there. It maybe has the word grace in there, and you'll see anywhere from ten to fifteen references on grace, and that could be a good place to start. But you may want one that's exhaustive if you're doing a word study. So exhaustive means that. It has every instance in Scripture that your translation, okay, here's something very important. If you're using a concordance, it needs to match the translation that you're using. Okay, so if you're going to be studying from the King James, you need a King James concordance. If you're going to be studying from the ESV, use an ESV concordance. And um, if it's an app, you'll be able to select the translation, and then you can look for the word within that, and it'll find it. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. It could, it could. There's, there's a lot to. There's a lifetime of study. You can't, you can't. If you spent every moment of your life studying the Bible, you wouldn't get to the end of all that could be studied. Yeah, I mean, we, we can get deep. I think we can get deep, but I, I think a person could make, it could make, it could consume your life, and in, in a good way. But you know, also, we can't just stay in our studies. We got to be salt and light. Okay, so it's important that we. We glean from the Word of God because we've got families we've got to communicate that to and a culture that needs to hear it and a church that needs to be enriched by it. So study's not the end goal. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book The Guns of August by Barbara Tuchman. It's about World War I, and she, she was writing an essay on um, writing history, and she said that research is endlessly seductive. Writing is hard work, and that has challenged me as a pastor. There's a time I've got to stop studying and start writing. And so you can't just study forever, but if you needed to, there's enough material in the Word of God to do it. And it will only enrich the more you do it. So anyway, bring that into balance. Concordance, um, you, could, you could read through the whole Bible. If you didn't want to trust the authority of a concordance, you could read through the whole Bible looking for one word. That would take a while. Um, and it would be beneficial, but you'll probably won't get very deep in word studies doing it that way. Because all of this has been done, people have spent that time looking for those words and placing them and saying, here's all the places it's found. That's in a concordance. And hard copy uh, will allow you to see every word, get it with your translation. But there's other options. What's the one that you use, Lorene? You said you used a, an app. Yeah, what's that called? Okay, while you look that up, you know what? I've got this massive Bible program. takes up a lot of space on my computer. Sometimes when I'm looking for a verse, I just pop over to Google and and type it right in there, and I can find it quicker because that other one's so resource-heavy that it sometimes takes a while to get to what I want to know. Okay? 
Lorraine, just let me know when you find it. Well, maybe it'd be good if it were there. What is it? Okay. Okay, this is um, the one I'm going to look up here is Bible Gateway, and I just want to show you what this looks like. Have you heard of Bible Gateway before? Okay, it's it's not the only site out there. Man, my computer doesn't want to. Hold on, just a sec. Let's see here. We've got slow internet. Here we go. Okay, so this is Bible Gateway. This is just one alternative concordance. If you're looking for a word in Scripture, you can look through here. I think we're on dial-up still here. Anybody remember dial-up? Okay, so look over here. You can see I've got my translation selected. You can look through all kinds of translations. Well, I made that mistake. You can tap that arrow. It'll drop down. You'll have all kinds of English translations, all your preferred ones and others. And you can come over here and you can type a word in. And tonight we're going to look up the word intercedes. It's just I needed a small word that would... Okay. So what should happen, because it happened at home is that it gave me a list of all the occurrences. Okay, this is apparently in the New Testament. I need to adjust my scope here. Boy. Sorry, folks. All, right? Intercede. There's my problem. Okay, that's going to be something I'll point out in just a moment. Intercede, and as you look through this... um, it's now going to show you your search results, okay? And you can see the word in bold there, intercede. If you're way in the back, you'll take my word for it on authority, okay? You can see all these occurrences of intercede. So you want to go through these. There's not a lot of them. We're already into Hebrews. I think there's five or six. Let's count them. Seven? Okay, well, I'm going to count Romans eight twenty-six and 27 together. How many does that make? Six, okay, okay. So you can you can see all those instances right there, right? So now what you want to do, and this takes more time with bigger words or words that are more frequent, um, you're going to want to go through and uh, look at each of these passages, okay, right around there, and see what's happening. Okay, if you're willing, let my let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. And I already did this for us, but the context here is Abraham is buying the, the plot for burying Sarah. Okay, And so he's wanting to intercede with someone in order for this to take place. Okay, So we can see intercession in some different um, examples there. So we're looking through in the context of our concordance, and we're finding out... Um, where all the places in Scripture that that word is used and how it's used based on the context. The context is the paragraph right around it. What is it saying? And just notice the difference. You can write down. I would take notes as you're doing this. Write down the difference. You're going to come to a better understanding of what intercession is as you you do a word study like this. I've got to hurry, but um, so what are the tools so far? 
good translation? Concordance. Okay, good translation, concordance. And then a third one is a, a dictionary or a lexicon. They call them lexicons when um, you're dealing with another language. And the, the lexicon that I'm going to suggest to you is not like the primary one because the primary one is going to demand that you know something of Greek or Hebrew. Okay, so I'm just bypassing all of that um, because I think there's one that would benefit you know, if you only speak English, and that's Mounts's Expository Dictionary of the Old and New Testament. What does expository mean? M-O-U-N-C-E, Mounts, okay? I think you could probably find it for 20 to $30, and it'll be beneficial because you can look up the words in English, and then it'll tell you the Greek and the Hebrew that stands with it, and it transliterates them, which means that it changes the characters from their original Hebrew or Greek into characters we use so we can have some kind of way of understanding how you'd pronounce it. Yeah, I'm going to mention that. It's Mounts's Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament. Expository just means that you're trying to get something out. You're trying to figure out what's there, give exposition for what's there. Okay. So this, it sounds super boring, but I promise you, if you use it, it will be rewarding. Okay. There's worse ones in terms of how boring they sound. And some of them really are boring. But I, I would also encourage you with this, that not everything that's rewarding is exciting at the moment. Okay, You may not have a cheerleader every day to tell you to do your studies, your word studies, but if you do them, it will reward you over time. And I think this is really important because, you know, I'm not just talking of having something to talk about as Christians. You're teaching your kids and grandkids things. You're confronting the world on truth. And so this is bigger than just having Bible knowledge that we can all get together in our little Bible club and talk about. This is talking about life-changing stuff and understand the depths of God's revelation to us. And so it matters. We do it anyway, but do we do it well? Here's how we can we can do it well. Okay. So let, let's practice on this one. And I think I have up here the places that I just looked up for intercede. And one of the challenges that we need to um, address is that when you have intercede, what are some other words that are related to intercede? Close, real close, not like prayer and stuff like that, but inner intercession, intercessor, okay? These things are all going to be important parts. So if you're looking them up, don't forget, the, they call those cognates. They're words that are related, okay, and directly, cognates. So you want to look those up. Uh, intercessor, intercession, intercede, interceding, things like that. You could think of all of, usually when you look it up, it'll suggest some other things to it. So you want to look that up. And I'm, I'm reading through, let's say I'm reading through Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 26 and 27, okay, so I've come to, this is Romans 8, so Romans eight twenty six and 27 says this, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, okay, through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people according to, uh, in accordance with the will of God, okay. Another interesting word study in this passage would be wordless groans. Uh, 
that would be an interesting one in this, especially in light of the fact that we're a Pentecostal church. What does wordless, what does wordless groans mean? What can it mean? And I have an idea. But let's, let's deal with intercession. Let's just pretend that we don't know what to intercede means. Okay, so now we're looking it up. We're finding out some things about it. It says in this context, the Spirit intercedes, does something for us. What, is, what does that mean? Okay, so then we're looking in the immediate context, and that happens to be in uh, that paragraph. And so we've looked around it, and it's saying the Spirit helps us. So intercession helps us in our weakness. And we don't know what to pray, so it connects it now with prayer. Intercession must somehow be connected to prayer, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. We don't know how to pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us. So now you see this direct connection. It's, it's called apposition, where one thing is stated, and then another thing uh, explains it a little further. Okay? Intercession is related to prayer. This is Romans eight twenty six and 27, if you'd like to uh, look at it. And he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people according, uh, with, according, in accordance with the will of God. So I'm trying to, this is my, what I was mentioning earlier. I'm, I'm reading back in what I remember rather than looking at the words here on the page. Okay, so now I want to take this passage and I want to look at some other translations. What am I going to do here? I'm going to look at the ESV. What does it say in the ESV? It says that the Spirit intercedes. Same word. Okay, so I'm not getting much help there. NAS says, I'm, I'm, I was reading from the NIV a moment ago, the New American Standard Bible and the ESV, they're very formal, so they're trying to get as close as they can to word for word. Uh, it says intercede, so I'm not helped much there. What do I do? Well, then I go to the NLT. The NLT is a more of a, uh, a form-based, not a form-based, a functional translation. It's trying to explain those difficult words. And so you have to be careful here because sometimes translations like that can overinterpret. But the NLT says the Spirit prays for us. Huh. So now we're seeing something of what intercession is. If I had no clue what intercession was, I would now have a little bit of an idea that it means that he's praying for us for us. And you're going to notice something in this context that intercession is always something one person does for another person or something one person does to another person, like intercedes to God or intercedes for us or intercedes for someone else. Okay, so there's a relational aspect to this. Um, the New English Bible, it's a British translation, it says that the Spirit is pleading for us. So we get a nuance there from that. Not not all of the nuances can be right. I mean, sometimes translations might just try to be different, but pleading for us has the idea of a, of an intense kind of um, well, intercession to use our word we're trying to define. Okay. So now we're going to look through these different passages that are kind of close to it, and I think we can um, get through this pretty quick. Romans 8, that's the closest one. And it that has intercession. As we look through our list, we've typed in intercede, and we've found our list, and I've got it pulled up here. Okay, Romans is the closest one because it's right in the same book by the same author. Okay, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who also was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, also interceding for us. Hmm. So we have the Spirit in the earlier part of Romans 8 interceding for us, and at the end of Romans 8, we have Christ himself praying for us. See, that's already kind of rewarding, isn't it? That we're finding out that 
that the Spirit and Christ are praying for us. And if there's a, a tandem group of prayer warriors that I would want praying for me, that's it. Right? The Spirit and Christ. Okay, so both praying and perhaps in different ways as the context would show. Now we're going to kind of go outward a little bit beyond the book of Romans, but still the same author, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge you then, who's the you? Or I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Okay, so now he's saying that whatever it is that Christ is doing, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is doing, we also need to do that for other people. Okay, we need to intercede. I'm not suggesting it's the same quality of intercession, but that same activity is being done by Christians. You can zoom out a little bit and find that um, there are other contexts. Hebrews, you might say that's Paul, but it's really, it's not Paul because the the language is that's used in Hebrews is different from Paul's language. It's more of a classical Greek, um, and his approach is different. If you want to hear the provocative, speculative um, answer to who may have written Hebrews, Priscilla. Wouldn't that be weird? <laughs> it would be. I don't know for sure, but uh, that would be a good fit. There are others that have been suggested, Barnabas and several other people, and maybe we're not meant to know. It's all speculation. But listen, we're still in the New Testament, aren't we? And so when we're talking about intercession, um, it says, once again, it's talking about Christ, that he lives to intercede for them. And you'll find out from the context that them is those who've been saved. Okay? Okay, zoom out a little more. And what do we find? Well, we go back to the Old Testament now. We're out of these New Testament passages. And we find Abraham... Uh, interceding with someone for something. He's talking to somebody in order to, to gain an advantage. You can see examples of this too. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 25, a person sins against another. God may mediate for the offender, but if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? We've already come to the answer of that, haven't we? That Christ himself is going to intercede. We've, we're starting to get some rich theological reward as a result of this. And then Samuel with a wayward and backslidden Israel who lost the Ark of the Covenant. Um, when it's returned, he prays. Symbol all of Israel, if you're going to make a new covenant with the Lord, I'll intercede to the Lord for you. I'm going to pray to the Lord for you. I'm going to pray for you to the Lord. Okay. First Kings 13, 6. Um, then the king said to the man of God, intercede with the Lord that he may heal my hand. Who is that? Remember when I think somebody came against, was it Elisha there in that context? I think it was. The man of God from Judah. So the man of God interceded. I should have known. The man of God from Judah interceded to the Lord, and the king's hand was restored, not distorted, restored, and he became as it was before. So intercession has happened on the part of the prophet to the Lord on behalf of somebody else. So we're seeing now three parties in intercession. We see who intercession is to, who intercession is from, who intercession is for. And then Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. Who's this talking about? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Who's that? It's Jesus, right? I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for their transgressions. Okay. So what does intercession mean generically? 
What is it? To intercede? And, and what does that mean? Pr- prayer to God? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so there's intercession is, I, I think, a base example or base um, understanding of it would be praying or pleading with someone on behalf of someone else. Is that fair? Okay, we can apply that to most contexts. It's the general, but then we come to the specific context, and we find that it's the Holy Spirit who prays to God for us through groanings which cannot be uttered in words. So we have to apply that somehow. We have to f- apply our findings somehow back into that context. And so to me, this is how we, we want to approach word studies, avoiding the idea that we can take some word and inflate it and just say that this says all that there is to say about it. When we come to the end of our word study, the end is not just to know what a word means in the broad containeral sense, you know, that we've got all these parts to it, but that we know how it applies to different contexts putting it back into the scriptures we're reading as we've understood it in that context. What does it mean? If it means three different things, what does it mean in that context? What does the world mean in John 3.16? It doesn't mean everything that we found. It just means a portion of that. We found maybe three different things from our exploration of the study of the word cosmos. Okay, One of them is it can be fallen humanity. It can be... Um, the globe, it can be people in general, and so we have to figure out which one applies. Not all of them do, which one, and then we come to a better understanding. Sorry, I'm three minutes over, and I had pictures of the llama right here on the end of my notes. I should have showed you earlier. Anybody know what difference is between alpaca and llamas? I found that out today, by the way. What's that? The spelling's different, yeah. One of them walks different. What is it? I, all I know is their small alpacas are smaller, their fur is softer, and they have shorter ears. And they exist further down the Andes than the llamas do. Anyway, all right. Well, I don't know how we got there, but let's uh, stand and have a word of prayer. Hey, thanks for your attention. I hope you put this into practice. If you're interested in these notes, um, let me know. I'll send them to you. If you, uh, you can go back and watch this again, but the best thing you can do is try to put this into practice and, and uh, glean from the Word of God. Father, thank you that you've spoken to us in words that we can understand. We pray that you enrich our lives as we seek you out in the Word that you've revealed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.